Welcome everyone to our final lead lecture, which gives me great pleasure to welcome John Snow and his wife Precious. John's an old friend and a former parishioner, and uh, we very much look forward, John, to uh, your talk about the media, why the worst is over and the best may yet be to come. And that's uh, really good news. And as ever, we will uh, hear what John has to say, and then we will open the floor to questions. And it will be exactly the same as it always is. Uh, you'll have to have the mic before you ask your question, please. <laughs> so Mark Aaron's got a mic at the back, and I've got a mic here. And um, we'll proceed like that. So John, over to you. So can you hear me all right? Good. Well, good evening, everybody. And it's lovely to be able to see the whites of your eyes. Uh, and the whites of your eyes. Uh, um, Ah, we've got a few more, which is really nice. There we are. Some very comfy chairs over here, just, just behind the rector. Well, good evening, everybody. Um, uh, I'm not a pulpit man myself. Uh, I, I've not done much pulpit work. Um, but my father was a pulpit man. He, he, he was, in fact, a bishop. And so I'm not a complete stranger to the... Uh, to the mechanics of pulpits, but it's nevertheless intimidating to be here because, you see, I mean, on a nightly basis, I don't really see anybody at all. I see a camera, well, I actually see about five cameras, and, and they've not even got human beings, all of them. Uh, three of them have got human beings, and two of them are what we call remote, and they're controlled by somebody with a little joystick in another room. Um, and so it's delightful to see so many people here, but it's also very intimidating um, and uh, oh, it is, it is, it is. Um, so the, my um, the, my theme tonight is the media and why the worst may be over uh, and the best may yet be yet be to come. But I must say, um, just as a sort of indication of the secular society we now are, uh, when I was looking for the rectory, um, I went into the pub because I came to the church first and sort of thinking the rectory might be somewhere near the church. I went in and I said to the, the guy behind the bar, do you know where the rectory is? He said, well, I think the church is up here, but I don't know where the rectory is. <laughs> and, I, and I thought, well, that's interesting, because time was when absolutely everybody in the community would know where the rectory was. Um, and uh, we've obviously moved on from those days. I say my father was a, was a cleric. Actually, it was as a result of his uh, clericism that... Um, I had my first political experience, um, and uh, it, it came about in his chapel, in his school chapel, where he was uh, the headmaster. And um, we used to sit as a family at the back, in the back row, at Evensong every Sunday. I found it a bit irksome, to, some, to be honest. I mean, at five or six or seven, it, it, it became a bit of a chore. But nevertheless, we went every Sunday at 6.30. And one day, um, one Sunday, I noticed that a rather old man in a very oversized greatcoat had joined us, but didn't say good evening or anything like that. He just sat at the end of the, of the pew. And I asked my father afterwards, I think it may have been my first kind of gen journalistic enterprise, I asked him who he was. And my father said, well, I'll introduce you next time he's here. And the next Sunday, he was there. And my father led me up to him at the end of the service. He said, um, John, this is Mr. Harold Macmillan. 
he's the Prime Minister. And um, Macmillan said to me, do you know what a Prime Minister is, young man? And I said, are you married to the Queen? (laughs) He said, uh, oh, no, 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 no. No, I am a Conservative politician and I run the country. And with that, he turned on his heel and walked out through the back of the chapel to his humble super-snipe, where there was a, a capped chauffeur waiting in the front seat. No security. And he purred off to Birch Grove, which was the largest house in our village, Ardinglie village in Sussex. And I thought to myself, if you have an oversized greatcoat like that, and you have a car like that, and you have a house like that, I'd like to be a conservative politician (laughs) and run the country. Um, And I sort of hung on to that kind of ambition, um, well, right into my teens. And uh, it was only sort of slightly detonated by going to work on VSO in Uganda um, uh, as a a teacher. And um, I worked on a Catholic mission school where the majority of the kids were Protestants was a strange thing because as I was telling Julie before the before this event um, often the padre that I had to go and collect uh, on a Sunday was too drunk to come and operate so um, I often had to take the services myself uh, and that, that was also a strain um, more of a strain than attending the 6.30 Evensong at which Harold Macmillan would be there. The awful thing is that of course being an, sort of a curious journalist I wondered what dear old Macmillan was doing there on his own on a regular Sunday night and of course only subsequently did I realise that his wife was having an affair with Bob Boothby and um, the poor old poor old Macmillan Prime Minister but absolutely on his own and um, the comfort he got was to come to come to chapel with us so it was a rather sad story really but anyway I just sort of give you that really to make you laugh because there weren't any jokes in anything I have to say um, <laughs> But I mean, we are uh, clearly in a, in a moment of, of uh, uh, sort of appalling sort of mud and muck and filth when it comes down to the media. But I would argue, in fact, it is a very specific end of the media. And um, it doesn't represent the end of the media. Um, undoubtedly, something awfully bad has developed at the tabloid end. And uh, it is gradually being cleansed. It more and more comes out, um, and presumably, eventually, things will be resolved and we'll all go back to normal. I suppose one of the questions I find myself asking is, what does it say about us? What does it say about us that we want this stuff, that we need it? And, and actually, the Brits seem to need almost more of it than anybody else. I mean, we have one of the most active tabloid um, you know, newspaper <coughs> industries of anybody. Um, the French have hardly any tabloid newspapers. The Germans have a, a tabloid called Built, which is mild by comparison with the Sun. Um, but there's something about us that is very intrigued in the terrible kind of um, misfortunes that befall um, celebrities and um, people who who get stuck in difficult situations and then get exposed. I mean. There's something odd about our interest in it um, and, and their desperation, therefore, uh, to feed it. Or are we not very interested, but we do get attracted by, by being fed it?
it's interesting. I don't know which way round it is, whether the tabloid media begat the readers or the readers begat the tabloid media. Is it our fault or is it theirs? Sort of tend to feel it's theirs, really. Uh, but then I talk about theirs as opposed to ours because I think there's a big distinction between what we're hearing Lord Leveson, um, as it were, expose uh, and the jobs that many of the rest of us do. A very nice reporter from uh, the local paper uh, asked me w whether I felt the trade of journalism had kind of been completely sent into the sewer. Um, and I said I didn't think it had. I think that, that, that readers and viewers and consumers of information um, are very discerning and, they, and, and they're, they're not unintelligent. And I think they know um, where, where the blame lies. So I, I accept, therefore, that we're in this rather bad trough at the moment. But I want to argue tonight that um, we are actually on the threshold of the golden age of journalism and the golden age of um, information. Um, when I started uh, as, a, as a journalist in television in 1975, it's hard to imagine, but that, that, is, that is when I started. Well, I started in radio in 1973, but when I started in television, uh, we used to go down to Downing Street and you were not expected to shout at the Prime Minister. You were not expected to say, Prime Minister, should we all have jerry cans? No, this would not be a, this would be not something we would shout. But nowadays, that's mild by comparison with what can be shouted at him. Um, and I well remember being sent down sometimes with a very beautiful, I mean, the cameraman would come armed with a very beautiful silent camera, a Bell and Howe wind-up camera, which lasted for a minute, colour, uh, but uh, nevertheless, it ran out after a minute and would then have to be wound up. Uh, and, I mean, again, that's sort of extraordinary in this day and age where you have absolutely instant uh, retrieval of images. And the best moment I can remember in these circumstances of complete silence when the Prime Minister came out was when Harold Wilson came out and his pocket was quite clearly on fire. There was smoke <laughs> billowing from his left-hand jacket pocket. And not one of us shouted... Prime Minister, your pocket's on fire. <laughs> because I don't think we entirely believed it. Um, but then we began to see flames. And he quite clearly not put his pipe out. Uh, and he was an inveterate pipe smoker. And uh, it had indeed caught fire and um, gone for it. Uh, and our decorum had prevented our shouting at him. However, uh, the policeman spotted it and he started hitting him. Uh, <laughs> it was all a very, very bizarre moment. Not captured on film, alas. I think we'd run out at that moment. Um, but, but the technology was very, very basic in those days, and, and um, I, I want to um, take you to my first foreign assignment, which, believe it or not, was in Uganda. I only... Um, became a journalist because I wanted to get back to Uganda. I, I found it, the, it was a completely cathartic experience being sent as a, as a teenager out to this uh, far-flung land. I'd never been on an aeroplane. Um, I had um, never lived amongst ethnic minorities. Uh, and I'd never been out of England. I don't think I'd really hardly been north of the Watford Gap. I had uh, because we moved there um, when I was about 13. But... My schooling was all in the south, 
I went to school in Oxford, and uh, so I had very little uh, world awareness. And so the whole uh, thing of the abroad came as an incredible shock, but so much of a shock that it made me no longer want to be a conservative politician, but did indeed make me wish to become a journalist. And my first assignment was indeed to be in Uganda. But I should tell you just one thing about being a teacher in Uganda, especially if you imagine that I was here amongst a population of people that I had never met and, and never, never experienced anything like. And I remember about three weeks into my experience as a teacher, I was writing on the blackboard, and somebody, there were about 70 kids in the class. Um, I'd say they were... You never knew how old anybody was because many of them had had to work in order to get the fees to pay to come to school. So they'd worked as children. And so some were older than I was. But <clears throat> I remember writing on the board and somebody made a rude noise behind me. And I turned around and I said, Who was that? And a rather beautiful girl in the front row said, That black boy at the back, sir. And I said, But you're all black. And she said, Ah, sir, some of us are much blacker than others. And I, I said, And suddenly I looked and this boy was a beautiful blue-black nanotic boy from the Sudanese border. She was rather sort of cappuccino and come from the southwest. And then I looked around and I realized what I was looking at were sort of blondes, redheads, um, brunettes, I mean, but in a different form. But everybody was as variegated as our own population here in this church. And the scales fell from my eyes. And I began to recognize really quite quickly that what I was I was in a class of kids that were as bright as any class you'd get in Britain, but they didn't have any of the opportunities that we had. And they made the best of what they had. Uh, they did not lose their enthusiasm and their, their capacity, but they were never really able to develop it to the fullest extent that you can do here. But anyway, that's why I became a journalist. I wanted to get back there. I fell in love with the place, and I wanted to get back there. And oddly enough, somebody came into the newsroom, I'd been a journalist for six weeks, and said, is there anybody in here who's ever been to Uganda? And I put my hand up rather gingerly. Said, right, that will do, Snow. You're going to Uganda with Mr. Callahan. He was the foreign secretary at the time. You're going to be on his plane, and you've got to leave in four hours' time. You're going to go to North Holt, and you will fly from there in a VC-10, and you'll be there tomorrow morning, and you're going to go and rescue a British lecturer called Mr. Dennis Hills. Well, Dennis Hills was a lecturer at McCary University and had written something offensive about Idi Amin. It wasn't difficult to write offensive stuff about <laughs> Idi Amin, but he had. He'd written a book called The White Pumpkin, which uh, completely traduced Amin in, 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 in barely disguised terms, and he tumbled to it and locked him up. And he then said to Callahan uh, in telegrams, if you don't come and collect this man, I'm going to kill him. And Callahan decided, well, I'd better go and get him. And there we were, solemnly setting off on a VC-10 to rescue one man from uh, a jail in Uganda. And this is where I have to reveal the technology to you, because we flew all the way down to Uganda, but there was no mechanism at all for transmitting any pictures. These days, if you went to Uganda, you would be able to transmit the pictures that night, and they would be, you could, you could transmit live, we have. Um, but in those days, 
it would take three to four days to, to get a picture out of Uganda. And the way you would do it would be you would solemnly film, film, yes, not video, not digital, not cyberspace, not none of the things we live with now, just good old-fashioned film. You would film it, and you wouldn't be able to process it because there would be no laboratories where you could process it. So you had to, what you had to do as a journalist was to stand at the shoulder of the cameraman and make a very careful note of every shot you saw. And you would say to the cameraman, did you get that dog running across the road? And the woman with the umbrella just walking towards us in red, did you get her? And he would say, no, I didn't, but there's a guy with a white stick just coming down the other direction. And so you would write that down, and then you would have to write a script in which you would uh, try to bring in some of these scenes, and then some poor old editor back in London would try and stitch your soundtrack to the pictures that had been shot by the cameraman. I mean, it's an incredibly laborious, difficult job. And people would sit in their living rooms and watch News at 10, and they would say, well, isn't that an interesting story there from Uganda? But they wouldn't care that it wasn't really what we now understand as news. I mean, it had happened three or four days earlier, but they'd only got to see it that day. And now... We see it as it happens. And that is a dramatic revolution. It's a, it's, it's, it's a shocking revolution, in a, in a way. But it's also something from which I believe very good things are going to, going to flow. Um, when uh, I went to Iran in 1979, or 78, 79, for the revolution, uh, well, I didn't go for the revolution. The revolution happened while I was there. One doesn't go for revolutions, revolutions go for you. And uh, this one certainly went for me. It was an absolutely all-consuming, unbelievable thing with sort of masses, millions of people in black swarming around the streets and the rest of it. And the Shah, of course, was already out of the country and sick and all the rest of it. But again, um, we had made a little step forward. We were able to process the film in Tehran, as, as Tehran was a sophisticated place and still is, and we could, we could put the stuff on the satellite. But the trouble was, if you did, then the government censor could get hold of it. And so sometimes it was better to lose a few days and send it back on a plane. But sending it back on a plane wasn't an easy thing either. You had to blag a passenger into taking it. And blagging often cost quite a bit, you know. $25? Nah, I'm not interested. No, no, no. And in the end, you'd end up paying $100 to somebody to carry these cans of film, which nowadays somebody would say was a grenade or a, an unexploded device or an IED or something highly dangerous that was going to explode in the phone. It was actually film, and that's all it was. But in those days, we were in an age of innocence before anybody had ever hijacked a plane or, or bombed it. So we would, we would blag passengers, or we would try and persuade the crew to take it, or the worst thing would happen would we'd have to go to the cargo shed and ship it and if you shipped it, that took another two days because the bureaucracy was such that it would take a day to fill in the forms and a day to collect it from Heathrow. So it really was very, very cumbersome. And what we now regard as absolutely commonplace news, in those days, frankly, was history, but everybody viewed it as news. Um, when it came to the release of Nelson Mandela ten years later, in 1989, we had video. We'd actually got video. It was an inch wide, it was, they were big cassettes, nothing like what, what video looks like now. And um, we were able to film and transmit on the same day. And we were able to send live pictures from outside the prison when it was released. 
And I'd never been to South Africa because in my checkered career, I had been thrown out of university for being involved in an anti-apartheid manifestation, I think we could say. I went to Liverpool University, which was a, a university which had very close ties with Tate and Lyle, which was really the biggest company in the town. And um, they owned a lot of sugar plantations in South Africa, where there were very poor uh, employment um, circumstances. And we didn't think that a liberal arts centre such as ours should uh, have this business in South Africa under an apartheid regime. Uh, they disagreed. Uh, they said, look, we're here forever. We've got to run this place. You're here for three years. You know, we're not going to listen to you. And so we did what people did in those days. This was in the late 60s. We occupied uh, the university administrative offices for about six weeks. And at the end of it, it ended because the vacation dawned and everyone went home. And <laughs> that was the sort of scale of our commitment. Uh, but unfortunately, ten of us were rounded up as ringleaders and got rid of, and I was one of them. And unfortunately, I don't have a degree to this day. But um, I was then sent in 1989 for my first ever trip with video. This is the first time we'd ever used live video from um, anywhere outside Britain. And I was sent for the release of Nelson Mandela. And none of us knew what he looked like. Television couldn't help us. Nobody could help us because there'd never been any pictures of him while he was inside. And he was inside for 27 years. The pictures of him we'd ever seen were of 27 years earlier when he was a very dark, swarthy man. And we knew 27 years later he would look very different. But we didn't know how he would look. And we stood at the gates. He was late. Um, I was live on ITV. On, 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 um, yes, they've got a special program going out in the middle of the day. And um, we had no guests. We had no one to talk to. So I had to talk myself for about, about an hour. And uh, you know, I talked about wondering what he looked like and all the rest of it. But at any rate, then this incredible moment dawned. We didn't have to ask which one was Mandela because right at the very far end of the prison camp, Emerging from a small bungalow was a man who could not have been anybody else. The most extraordinary thing, that he came forward with Winnie, um, I mean, you couldn't identify at that distance who he was actually with, but there was a crowd of people, and it kind of was like a red scene. He was left in the middle, coming down the middle, and he was just unmistakably a man who had survived 27 years and had, was capable of coming forward and saying you know, I won't forget, but I do forgive, which of course is the most extraordinary statement that any great statesman has really ever been able to make after such an experience. But you imagine this boy who'd been slung out of university for a pathetic protest on apartheid, uh, and he's charged with being there in front of this remarkable man leaving prison. It was a, an amazingly emotional experience. And we were there with the technology to provide people with live pictures of it. It was rather funny because during this hour during which um, we were waiting for Mandela, uh, we weren't allowed to use our own cameras. There was only one, what we call, pool crew. They were working for every broadcaster, and they were provided by SABC, South African Broadcasting. And um, uh, the, the cameraman went to sleep in the middle of the wait. And uh, the camera on the tripod dipped down. Nobody was holding it. 
and it just sort of dipped down and was filming people's feet. <laughs> and and I, 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 I thought to myself, what, what am I going to say about this? Because I can't really say the cameraman's gone to sleep. Nor indeed can I intervene and try and get the camera up again. And so I said, you know, for some people here, this doesn't really mean very much. And so that's why you're seeing the feet of the people who are waiting. Um, because actually the cameraman is asleep. Uh, and, and, and that's a fact of life. In, in this amazing historic moment, the cameraman has fallen asleep and the camera is looking at people's feet. So there we were able at last to transmit instant pictures. But now we've arrived at a quite different moment. We've arrived at a moment when you are part of the action. We are all part of the action, potentially. You know, when I joined Channel 4 News as the anchor in 19... that same year, that same year that Mandela was released, um, in an average week, I would get perhaps three letters from viewers. And they would be in green ink, some of them, underlined in red. Uh, occasionally they would be in blue ink. Sometimes they'd be very wise, but most times they would be making a sort of complaint or something. But that was literally the only direct contact one had with a viewer. Uh, other than when you uh, were catching a train and somebody would say, Mr. Bosenket? And you would say, uh, no, he's a touch older. Um, uh, uh, it wouldn't be Sandy Gore, would it? No, no, I'm, I'm not. No, I'm afraid I'm new and you wouldn't know me. Um, but anyway, uh, that was the contact we had with the viewer. Now today, today, I mean this very day, I mean, well last night I can tell you that, that I probably got about, I don't know, a hundred tweets from viewers expressing views about what we'd done, adding something saying, if, if you're interested in this, have you seen this? Um, I'll talk more about Twitter a little bit later, but, but constant contact. Uh, emails, they go to our website, we write blogs, they write comments. There is a democratization of, of information, a democratization of the way we play with information. Of course there's a looseness, people tell you lies, people are wrong, but then we're wrong sometimes too, though we don't have the courage to say so. Uh, we're, we're getting it, but n not, not completely. You know, the New York Times, for ten years now, has had a long column of apologies, of corrections, of things they got wrong in the day before's paper. And I'm urging my employers that we should, each night, anything that we got wrong the night before, even if it's the spelling of um, this parish, uh, we should um, correct it and say we got it wrong. Um, because I actually think that increases trust. And trust is what we're all about. Trust is really why I'm talking to you at all today, because trust has broken down because of what has happened in the Murdoch Empire. So um, you've got a situation now in which we can all share information. Uh, and we, many of us are using the same tools that many journalists are using uh, to, to, to find out our information. But there's another side to all this, which is really uplifting. It's depressing and uplifting, but it's uplifting above being depressing, and I'll explain why. You know, in our lifetime, in our recent lifetimes, there have been a number of massacres. Rwanda, Srebrenica, Sri Lanka, to name three. 
Now, Rwanda, there was almost no evidence whatever of what actually happened because nobody was able to film it. There were very few journalists who managed to get a sort of idea of what had happened. Um, Srebrenica, even less. And then you get to Sri Lanka. And suddenly we have reached an age where the victims of human rights abuses are able to film what's happening on their mobile phone. It's an extraordinary thing. I mean, most of us, I think, from time to time, probably say, I wish my mobile phone was just a phone and not everything else. But actually, for them, the fact that it can take pictures has been quite extraordinary. And I've been involved in making two films in the last year about what happened in the final weeks of the Sri Lankan Civil War. And it's entirely fed by the information the victims and some of the perpetrators were able to record. So it means for the first time in history that if tyrants decide they're going to abuse their own people, they can't be absolutely sure that there won't be really large quantities of evidence of what they did that will reach the outside world. And that's a fantastic plus, because once people know that what they do will be visited upon them because there will be photographic proof of it, we may move into a kind of new, a, a new arena. Now, of course, it's happening in Syria, and people are recording a lot of what is happening to them. Uh, what was so awful about Sri Lanka was that not only did the victims film some of what happened to them. I mean, for example, I mean, the story of Sri Lanka is a very simple one. In the closing moments of the civil war, the government declared a number of no-fire zones, and eventually one big no-fire zone, and 120,000 Tamils were herded into this no-fire zone. And gradually the no-fire zone got smaller and smaller. One of the things that local people filmed was what happened when, under the Geneva Convention, when they moved their clinics as the zone moved, when, they, when the Tamils moved their clinics, under the Geneva Convention, you, you tell the International Red Cross, they inform the other side. And that means that if the Red Cross is on the roof of the tent or whatever it is, it does not get bombed. But in this case, within a few minutes of alerting the Red Cross as to where their facilities were, they would be bombed. They were actually targeted as a result of the information. And so what these people filmed was the movement of the and establishment of the tent of the clinic, the radio communication with the International Red Cross, and then quite soon after, the shells and bombs coming in pretty well targeted on where they were. So we're entering another informational revolution in which a great evil can be pictured and eventually people brought to justice. Now, I mean, it's a very slow process. The International Criminal Court was set up 10 years ago and only one person has so far been convicted and that was two weeks ago. It took 10 years to get to their first case. But this is an evolving thing. It's an interesting thing. The Americans were very against the International Criminal Court because they were worried about what would happen to their soldiers in the field, etc. But they too now are beginning to come round and support it and do bring people before it, although they don't themselves yet recognize it. But we do, and 90 other countries do. And so there's a hope that, that through technology, this strange fact that ordinary people have mobile phones we are moving into a, an age in which that sort of information uh, can 
somehow make the world a better place because over time people will realize that they can't actually abuse their people in quite that way ever again. That, that's my hope, I must admit. I, um, I wanted to just talk to you about the social network because you know, I'm sure lots of you are on Facebook, some of you may be on Twitter. How many people here are on Twitter? Very good, very good. You know, you're missing a trick. I tell you, honestly, the thing about Twitter is not 140 characters, which seems a completely banal thing, only to have 140 characters to make your communication. It's the fact that you can lead people to water. Now, the thing about Twitter is that you can... Um, it's a very, very simple thing to use. It, it only, after all, lasts two lines. But in those two lines, it's possible to, to put in a link to an article, a film, or whatever. And, for example, I was coming back from Haiti uh, last year, and there was a really very good piece in the Wall Street Journal about why aid to Haiti is failing. And so I just tweeted, if you're interested in Haiti and want to know why aid is failing, read this, and then just put the link to the website and Bob's your uncle within seconds they're able to read that. Now, that would be an article that very few people in Britain would read, but we all now have followers, we follow people, and they follow us, and that sort of thing, and, and if you're careful about who you follow, uh, you can never be careful about who follows you, uh, you don't have any control over that, but you do have a control over who you follow, then it's, it's very possible to pick up extraordinarily interesting articles, films, music, poetry, just the night or two nights after the Stephen Lawrence trial, the one that convicted the, the, the two boys for um, murdering him, uh, Carol Ann Duffy, the poet laureate, wrote a completely brilliant poem about Stephen Lawrence. It was a really beautiful thing. Turn it up if you get the chance. Google it. It's only 11 lines, but I tweeted it. And it, it set up an amazing traffic about poetry, about a poet laureate, is that what they should be doing? Is is you know how far uh, does she go? And the rest of it, it's a really very interesting conversation. And that in the end is what we're talking about, conversations. But there is a downside. And the downside I think is that that an awful lot of people are, are beginning to live their lives through all this. And the actual physical human contact I mean there's something wonderful to be in this church with the manifestation of a community who sit shoulder to shoulder Sundays after Sundays and do things together as a community. But it's becoming rarer. Uh, I know we've got mega churches with three and a half thousand people in them. I, I, I don't think that's entirely the way forward. Uh, but it, it's to find communities that are still engaging with the whites of the eyes, which I was complaining about having you in there. Um, uh, you know, and, and this worries me that, that, that this obsession with cyberspace, if you like, being burrowed into a computer where people think they're having a tremendous communal time with other people, but in fact they're never having the full holistic engagement with other human beings. And they become, in some ways, quite isolated. So there has to be a balance. But I believe that when the whole thing settles down, after we've only had most of this for a decade at the most, Twitter only for three years, less, uh, Facebook for only seven years, or I mean, ridiculous. These things are so recent. 
you know, we weren't much younger seven years ago, actually. We were much the same as we are now. Um, you know, our hair might be whiter or whatever, but, but you know, I dye mine white, by the way. I'm really blonde. <laughs> I, I dye it white for gravitas. Um, but uh, seriously, um, we, we, we're going to have to settle down. And, and the, for the moment, the technology is the master of the human being, and we have to return to a point at which the human being is the master of the technology. And that sort of brings us back to how you deal with this rogue element in the media with whom I started. You know, I'm regulated. Yes, I'm regulated. The News of the World was not regulated. Um, and actually, you know, I need regulating. I'm really quite dangerous. Um, I mean, if I'm sort of really let go, I might well get into trouble. But we have to practice balance. We have to be... We have to give a fair a fair run of the mill to both sides. We have to be reasonable. We have to be responsible. And if we allow a particular view to pertain, then we must balance it with another, another view. That's the obligation under the regulator. Now, newspapers are not regulated, and I don't think they ever will be. They were self-regulated, and that meant they weren't regulated at all. I don't know what Leveson will do, because there's always the danger of infringing free speech. So, I, I mean, he's got an absolute bed of nails. Not only does he have to sweat through all this stuff, and some of it's pretty gory, uh, but he also has to come up with a, with a solution. Um, and then we, and I was talking again to my colleague from the local paper, we have to find a way of making a living, because it's all free. Nobody pays anything. You know, you used to buy the newspaper, but you can now read it on the BBC website for nothing. So we're worried about how we're going to get paid. And I always like to uh, conjure the analogy of a wonderful documentary, which I strongly recommend you see. Probably some people have seen it. It was on telly a couple of times. Um, and it, it, it's about the uh, Twin Towers. Uh, not, not about the 9-11, uh, um, but it's about um, what happened when a mad Frenchman wanted to walk the tightrope between the two towers. Man on wire, it's called. And I think this allegory goes as follows. You've got these two towers, and you have this mad tightrope walker who lives in France, has never seen them, and never been to New York, has no idea how he's going to get through the security to get up there, no idea how to get the wire across to the other tower, let alone walk across it. But he does it. He manages it. He actually gets the wire across. He manages to walk across, lie on it, stand on one foot, stand on the other foot, stand on his head, dance. And the people were looking up. The interesting thing is he was so inefficient, he didn't take a movie camera with him. And there are only stills of it. But it definitely happened because hundreds of Hundreds of people saw it. But the point of the allegory is, in one tower you have the new world of Google and Yahoo and all those people who are online. And they are all there with their technology and the rest of it. And in the other tower is the BBC, Channel 4, the Daily Telegraph, the Times, all the conventional media that's here. We're rich in content. They're impoverished in content. They're desperate for us and we're desperate for them. And so I believe we will, even though none of us has ever walked a tightrope, and none of us has a clue how we're going to get it across, 
somehow it will work. And we will be in a new age in which we know more about the world in which we live, we can do more about the world in which we live, and we can connect more with the people in our wider community. I mean, um, for example, I don't know, it's very possible this parish has an intranet, but it's very possible it doesn't. But imagine if you did have an intranet, you could all share much more information about the plumber. He's not that good. <laughs> then he sues you. Um, but, but, but seriously, I mean, and, and, and you, could, you could talk to each other about when you actually wanted the trash collected, etc. I mean, there, there are lots of communal things which can be beautifully serviced by an intranet, by everybody being able to talk to each other uh, in this immediate locale. Because again, my colleague was asking, what's going to happen to the local media? And I said, well, I think, I think people will get back to wanting to be with each other. Maybe not necessarily in church, but together as human beings. That, that's what's at risk, is the community. And that's, you know, where the big test will come. If we can master this wonderful technology and use it to the highest possible purpose and at the same time uh, somehow uh, stick together and, and be as human beings were created to be, which is communal people who meet each other, talk to each other, play with each other, work with each other. Um, that, that, that must be the goal. And, and if we allow the technology to, to defeat that, well, then we've lost. But I'm absolutely convinced we'll win and we're going to head for a, a very sunny tomorrow, although I gather it's going to be rather cold tomorrow. Um, <laughs> that's all I've got to say at the moment. But if anybody has any questions, seeing as you don't have to come over to the church to ask the questions, then I'm very happy to answer anything you like about anything under the sun. And anything I can't answer, I will refer to the rector. <laughs> in fact, in fact um, I, I had a nightmare last weekend because I, I was sitting in the parish church where Julie one of the six that she used to preside over, um, worrying about coming here today. And I suddenly realised, because it's Lent, and these are Lent talks, I thought, what do I know about Lent? Except that it's a moment of relative um, frugality. Um, so I, I had nothing to say about Lent, but fortunately she told me I didn't need to talk about Lent. <laughs> so I'm going to leave her to talk about Lent. Well, that's great. We can all go to the <laughs> we can all go to the pub. I'm sure yes, there's a hand there. Yeah. Thank goodness. <clears throat> I don't actually know what the question is as such, but I was reflecting earlier on all of the horrific signs that are seen globally. And how it sits with you as a church girl, a person of faith, just living in that world? Well, it's a very interesting question. Um, I think, uh, you know, I'll give you an example. I was sent in 1982 to El Salvador. I didn't know where El Salvador was. I literally had no idea where it was. I, I thought it was vaguely Latin American, but I couldn't 
ever have put a needle into a map and found it. Um, there was a civil war going on and an archbishop had been murdered, Archbishop Oscar Romero. <clears throat> and in those days, the murder of an archbishop was a big story. Um, and um, in those days, the government, which was sort of in hock to the local oligarchs, um, had death squads. And the death squads would pick off human rights activists, peasant leaders, etc., anybody they thought was, you know, fermenting revolution. And um, you'd often come down from your hotel room and find bodies had been left in the car park to, um, for you to notice. And they had a dumping ground under the volcano out of town, and there were black lava pits, and the bodies would be thrown there for the vultures to come and feed off. And we went out there um, to film, and I couldn't look at what I was seeing. I couldn't focus on it. I didn't want to look at it. I mean, I didn't want to see a human corpse in that condition. My cameraman rolled. And what is odd is that when I got back to London to edit the piece, once it was sanitized by going through the camera lens, in some way I was able to look at it, select pictures, try and find what was manageable and edit it into a story, because I felt you had to understand this was happening, but you couldn't give them the most gruesome. So there's some strange disconnect between what you're looking at and what you can see once it's on film. There is a, there's a removal. But I think the other thing is, you're there on behalf of people who are not there. You're there to uh, try to tell people what, what's happening. And I think you owe it to people to um, be true to your own emotions. Uh, you can't, I mean, some, I have been with people who've said, oh, look, here's another juicy dead body or whatever. It's an amazing thing, but people do are like that. I mean, they can, they can deal with this by sort of bravado and absurdity. Um, and, and I confess, you know, uh, I, I certainly find myself crying on assignment. I mean, you don't do it on camera, obviously. I mean, you just feel it coming. I mean, I was in Tahrir Square um, this time last year, and, you know, there was something overwhelming about an oppressed people suddenly throwing off their yoke. And, you know, it's, it's almost a year to the day that Mubarak was overthrown. And, um, you know, you, 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 do, you just find things rolling down your face. And, and I think that informs the way you write, and the way you select the kind of pictures. So I do not like to look at these sites, but they do inform what I've got to try and tell you. Um, and uh, that's my job. Um, but I don't like that bit, but I like most of the rest of it. Anybody else? That was a really interesting. No, nice, there's one over here. Uh, sorry, so you're going to be walking about four miles by the time the evening's over. Uh, he's at the end of the pew. <clears throat> Thank you very much, John, for your uh, very frank and opening canvas about the media. Uh, I was very interested in your um, contrast between regulation and free speech, and you did highlight. 
was racially abused yep. and a man was sent to court and uh, sent to prison as a result. I wonder uh, if you could enlarge on the balance between our speech and regulation. You know, where do you see it going? To what extent is regulation valid? To what extent is free speech valid? Well, you've asked the most challenging question because I mean it is a really very difficult thing to resolve I mean my own experience of regulation which I would say is light touch um, is extremely positive I mean I've been taken to Ofcom a few times but I've usually been cleared um, uh, the government of Sri Lanka complained about me and Ofcom did a very thorough review and said that what we'd done was justified by the facts and by the images we produced. Um, but it is a very, very, very important balance. Um, it seems to me free speech has to be curtailed once it breaks the law. And is the law, uh, there is a law against racial hatred. And that was what this man transgressed even in, 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 in a drunken moment um, it, it's, it's a very sad story in a way, I mean it's sad that he ever felt the need to say what he said and you feel that, that anybody, who, anybody who doesn't know what he did was he, he, he racially abused Mwamba the, the, the boy who had the heart attack uh, playing for Bolton and, and literally he was at that moment clinging to life and in that moment, he chose to say some absolutely filthy racial observations uh, on Twitter. Um, I don't know. I mean, does he have the right to say that? I would say no. Uh, I would say that that is where the law has to, has to kick in. Um, but, you know, the Americans are much more purist about this than we are. I mean, free speech really does rule. I mean, it, you know, the uh, First Amendment is absolutely untouchable and and they're much more liberal with free speech than we are uh, but in the end I'm not sure they're a better society than we are and they do have Fox News and <laughs> Fox News is is really pretty heavy weather um, you know I, I mean I just don't think something like that would survive here because I think we would be offended by it it would make a lot of people very angry. Whereas in America, it makes a lot of people very happy. Uh, it's a very, very strange thing. I don't have an answer for you. I don't know where the point is. But I don't think, for all sorts of different reasons, I don't think you can regulate papers the way they regulate us. You see, that they give us a license to broadcast. You don't give a newspaper a license to operate. People are free to make a newspaper any day of the week. Um, but we are not free to set up a television station uh, and and start performing in the in the public sphere. You have to have a license. You have to apply for a, a bandwidth because if everybody did it, this is interesting actually because you can have any number of newspapers because you know you could never run into a situation where the country couldn't carry any more newspapers that the, the whole place was covered in newspaper. Uh, but you can have a situation where the available bandwidth for television to operate becomes completely clogged and so you do have to have a licensing system and therefore if you have a licensing system you have this question of are you fit and proper to run a television station 
uh, and you have to abide by the following regulations, etc. And of course, that, that is what Mr. Murdoch's being investigated for now. Is he a fit and proper person to be running a TV station? And poor Ofcom have to decide which the answer is. Um, so, yeah, good question. Um, and I haven't answered it. But, uh, <laughs> but, I, but I, 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 respect you. I respect you for asking it. Yes? Yes. Well, the paparazzi are a very interesting bunch because they range from the sort of professional photographer, who I'd say is more or less in the minority now in the paparazzi, to total chances. You know, uh, unemployed builders, um, sanitary wear salesmen, doesn't matter what they are. I mean, they get on their bikes and they chase. They get wind of where somebody is and they chase and chase and chase. And they make life as um, uh, people have described in the Leveson... Hugh Grant and others have described in front of Leveson, they make life absolutely appalling. Um, and new technology, if anything, I think has made life even easier for them because the shot is instant. You don't have to process it like Kodak or any of that stuff. It's, it's there. And, and they can upload it immediately. And it can be on the desk of the News of the World, although News of the World ain't there anymore, but it can be on the desk of the Sun uh, seconds after it was taken. Um, it can be in the newspaper. It can be on the website. So I think they've been liberated by... Um, uh, and in many ways, I think that's what's made the paparazzi so awful because there's hundreds of them, and the, most of them are not journalists at all, not, not what you or I would understand as professional photographers. They're chances. They're, they're people trying to, you know, win the million-dollar jackpot, get the shot nobody else got, and make a lot of money out of it. Um, that's all it is. And I'm afraid new technology, far from putting them out of business, has probably put them in business, uh, simply because of the ease with which you can, you can peddle your wares when you've got them. Yes. A clerical question coming. Uh -huh. Yeah. Well, they're a good, good benchmark against which to measure tyranny. Yeah. It so often seems to me that it's the, it's the bad news which uh, gets the highlights. And I mean, I've always been so amazed at Nelson Mandela. Hmm. And it always seemed to me one of the miracles of our age. I never thought that the South African situation could be dealt with other than by an absolute... Bloodbath. Hmm. I think it brought that about, and with that concept of forgiveness. And what saddens me, I think there's a lot of young people now who have no idea of, of, of what went on and how tremendous that was and what a model that would be 
for so much which is actually tearing the world apart now? Well, I agree and, and disagree with you. I, I agree that there's far too much bad news, but on the other hand, people don't tune in for good news. They tune in to find out that things have happened that leave their lives actually a little bit better than anyone else's in the sense that, you know, they, I don't know, the poor woman today who, who was trans-shipping petrol from one can to another and the oven was on and the thing blew up and she's got 40% burns and may not live, you know what I mean? I mean, and you just say to yourself, well, there but for the grace of God, but thank, thank you very much. So you feel better for bad news, which is awful. Um, but, with, but I disagree, because I think most young people are taught about Nelson Mandela. You see, he's secular, uh, you know, so, so there's no, no running away from Christianity or any of that, which, you know, goes on a bit. Um, this, is a, this is a totemic figure that I think people do get taught about. A lot of kids do know who Nelson Mandela is. And, you know, when he dies, perish the thought. But, you know, I don't know quite how we will manage it, because... There have been very few people, of course there have been people down the age, people like Trevor Huddleston, all sorts of people who have made a wonderful contribution. Dear old Tutu, you know, he never remembers my name, he calls me man on a bicycle. <laughs> because, because I go, go to work on a bicycle and I often, when I have interviewed him in the past, I've turned up in my kit. And, uh, but, but, you know, uh, but clearly Mandela is, is somebody who, who, who represents a one-off in history because this whole concept of forgiveness is so so unusual. Um, of course there are many people who forgive people, but 27 years in jail, the oppression of a people, you know, it's, it's so redolent with so much more than one man's suffering. It's as if one man's suffering has come to embrace a whole panoply. And when he dies, it will be very difficult to encapsulate what, what he was um, and how it changed a lot of people's outlook on life. Um, but but I um, no, I, I mean I I agree with you. I agree with you. Yeah. I feel very very lucky to have spoken to him, to have interviewed him. You know when he came out, if you did an interview with him early on, I think it still would be true now, but he doesn't do them anymore. But. Um, you were so used to asking politicians questions and then having an answer to a question you didn't ask. You know, you say, what day of the week is it, Minister? And they would say, you know, the dual carriageway outside New <laughs> is giving us a great deal of concern. And we're going to invest... No, no, but today, what, what, what's the date today? Uh, I heard somebody asking a question this morning um, to which they couldn't get an answer. Uh, oh, yeah, how big was your swing? Uh, the, the Conservative had said, you know, Labour, massive, 37% swing. And then they said, well, so what was the Tory swing, which was also apparently pretty bad, uh, uh, sort of 23% or something. And, and she didn't want to answer, and she went off on various tangents. They did get it eventually. Um, <laughs> but, but the thing with Mandela was, he'd not been media trained. He'd not been prepared for... He'd never given it. He gave one television interview before he went in. He was underground, and he gave it... Uh, to to, to a, a, a man who was working at ITN when I was there. He was their business affairs man. I don't know how on earth he got the interview. And it wasn't very interesting. Um, but it was before he was captured. And that's all there is of him on television before he was captured. And um, you sit down in front of him in those early years and you are amazed because he is 
if anything, even more interested in you than you are in him. And then you ask him a question, and he answers it beautifully, and, and elaborates, and, and takes more questions than the rest of it. You know, and that's so refreshing. It's an extraordinary thing. Why don't people recognize that, that actually people are watching television who are not dunderheads? They actually do want to have some answers. And how refreshing it would be if they just got a cascade of actual answers. It'd be absolutely fantastic. And you know, the, the, one of the uh, rather interesting things about coalition life is that in the old days, uh, we thought a U-turn was a terrible thing. You know, oh my God, they've done a U-turn on X or Y. Well, now we've had, I don't know, we, we get a U-turn more or less every week, but I think that's a very good thing. Because it means they've sort of thought, well, I'm not sure we, this is such a good idea. So they change. And that's how human beings are. You see something, you thought you'd do it this way, but you decide you'll do it that way. That's fine. What's wrong with that? You know, I, I think openness, transparency, all the rest of it. I don't know what this Bradford West uh, election result's all about. It's very, very interesting. Is it Orpington? Is it just a sort of funny flash in the pan? Is it something to do with Galloway, who's obviously a bit of a, you know, sort of oddball, clever, um, you know, resistible and irresistible uh, character? Um, or is there actually a bit of a despair and despond with the disconnect with Westminster? You know, I spend quite a bit of time down in Westminster. It feels very remote, more remote than this church. This church is in the heart of life. Westminster seems very remote and odd. 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 It's not how we live. You know, we don't, we don't get one side of the nave and measure it out with a sword and a half and sit down here and shout at the other side and have them shout back. I mean, it's... <laughs> Well, you know, it's hard. It's hard. Sorry. Yes. A monastery. I've been in a Carmelite nunnery, which was silent. Um, no, when I came back from El Salvador, they wanted to know about Romero and the rest of it, and I was allowed to come to the grill. It's in Wakefield, and there were seven Carmelite nuns. Fantastic women. Marvellous really committed, dedicated, but they wanted fresh information about El Salvador and how they could pray, think, work, write, you know, in support of the people that were suffering in El Salvador. I thought it was very sweet and it's one of the most interesting anthropological experiences I've ever had. And apparently the bishop would do the same thing. He could go to the grill, but not go through it. Uh, it was very, very intriguing. I recommend it. Monastery, I must try. Do you... Do you... Do you, do you so used to, you used to what they call the office. And one would sing from one side, and then the other one would reply. So you get the shouting. Ah, 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 but that's much more ordered. I, I did that in Winchester Cathedral. I was a yeah. chorister. And we had Decana and Cantoris. And, you know, we, we would do a lot of... Uh, I think we were more, more together than apart, but, but there was a bit of um, canon activity. <laughs> yes. You, John, uh, you actually answered my question about George Galloway, but I had a second. Ah, ah. Dangerous territory, though. One, one, one must not venture too many thoughts about George Galloway. I think <laughs> I could get into difficulty. <laughs> um, I just wondered um, do you have any influence um, as to what we see in Channel 4 News? 
Well, you see, the great subterfuge is that I think I do. <laughs> but, but if you asked my oldest and betters, my editor, well, he's actually younger than I am, but I mean, if you asked him, he'd say, no, none at all. He says an awful lot, but to be absolutely honest, we don't take any notice of it. Um, I am renowned for having ten ideas, nine of which will be completely mad, and one will be inspired. Um, and I, I don't think that's a bad hit rate, actually. Um, no, I mean, the way we work is a really interesting way, because we start the day at 9.30 in the morning, we sit round a table, 20 of us, and people shoot the breeze. They hear what they've seen or what they've heard, what they've uh, heard on the Today programme, whatever it is, um, what's in the diary for today, what happened yesterday, what's happened overnight, um, things that we've been working on long term. Uh, last night we had a very interesting story about how um, the um, organised crime groups, the mafia and others, have penetrated the police computer and been able to uh, adjust uh, aspects of the data in it to prevent live trials from ever working out and, and, and also uh, getting in to discover the identity of protected witnesses, etc. Uh, nasty stuff, but that was something we'd been working on for about three weeks or more. Um, but generally speaking, by the end of about 40 minutes when everybody's had their say and the rest of it, we've come to a sort of menu and then we'll start to distill the menu and people will be given tasks and the rest of it. And thing is reasonably collegiate so it would be wrong if I did have a lot of influence to be absolutely honest. In America the anchor is also the editor of the of the program which I think is a very bad thing I mean I think you know you mentioned Hitler I think it goes out that way you know you, you very quickly I mean I don't know if anyone saw a wonderful film with Peter Finch in it called Network he goes completely mad uh, and he's in charge uh, some some uh, moment he starts telling everyone to open their window in Manhattan and lean out of the window and shout, I'm mad as hell. Uh, and everybody does, you know. And they, they, I don't think we want to go that route. That's why I'm regulated. <laughs> Have I done my 50 minutes? H how much did I underrun by? Did you check? Five minutes. Five minutes. You know, 45 minutes is a long time. Well, uh, I think my best work is yet to come. <laughs> um, and I, I, I'll tell you, I, I'll, I'll veer into the realms of fantasy. What I'd like to be remembered for would be accompanying Barack Obama to Tehran to open diplomatic relations and to begin to engage with Iran. Because I don't believe that attempting to negotiate with a country on the basis of its nuclear weapons is going to produce anything but an eventual tragedy. And that the solution, with what is a, an extraordinary civilization, uh, you know, I mean, the Iranians were writing alphabets, inventing numbers, when we were still crawling around on our bellies in caves. Now, I'm not talking about the regime, I'm talking about the civilization, and it is still very much there. It's a bright and engaging country that looks west. This is what is so strange. The contrast between Iran and Saudi Arabia is five centuries. It's a modern state, despite the Islamic Revolution. 
And, you know, Obama went to Cairo and made a great speech in which he extended the open hand of friendship. But there was no wrist, no elbow, no arm, and no body. I believe that if he's re-elected, Iran will be his China, and I'll make sure I'm on the plane. <laughs> Well, a very dishonest answer. Because <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's unexpected, isn't it? And it's always a good idea to surprise. But I, mark my words, I, I think that'll be what he tries. And he needs to. If anybody wants to bomb Iran, bomb it with laptops. That would overthrow the regime in a week. I mean, you know, they are very literate, very, very tooled up. Um, and uh, it, it it's got to a very bad pass. You know, the, the, it's a very divided regime. Uh, it, it, it's, um, you know, Ahmadinejad has said some crazy things, but he's not in fact crazy. I've interviewed him on a number of occasions. Um, I'm not saying he's a good man, but I'm not saying he's an impossible man either. I think it would be possible to do business. Um, and, 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 you know, one of the awful things we like to do is, is to determine... Um, you know, bad people, and then they are bad forever. And 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 I'm not sure that's going to get us very far. We didn't get any questions from the whites who arrived, <laughs> but maybe that's why you went to the hall. <laughs> yes. Mm. And I teach A level sociology. And actually, I'd like to thank you. You are my homework. Wow. <laughs> You're sure you don't teach psychology? Actually, I do. But uh, just to say, actually, that young people um, are really engaged with the news and actually really do listen, take them, discuss, debate, and actually engage. I agree with you 100%, because anecdotally, um, you know, I'm not saying I'm famous, but if, you, if you're on a train, or you're on a station, or you're walking down the street, it's young people who stop me, invariably, invariably. And I don't think that's because older people are shy. I think they really are enthusiastic. And oddly enough, Channel 4 News has the highest uh, rating of viewers between the ages of 18 and 24 of any terrestrial news program. And that's very refreshing and very uplifting because it means they are dealing with quite difficult concepts and ideas and that they want stuff in depth. And that's something I didn't say in my talk, which is that I think that though much of what we see in cyberspace is very superficial, there is also a lot of yearning for depth uh, and there is the opportunity to fulfill that yearning without a doubt. I think we've exhausted them, haven't we? I've got a question. Ah, does God exist? No, right? You could ask that. <laughs> My question, John, is that I think the Church of England has had a very bad press in the past, well, decades, certainly, perhaps longer. And it strikes me that part of this is home go you know, own goals um, on our part. But one does begin to get the impression that the press have it in for the Church of England in particular. 
Uh, it's an interesting question. I think what actually does quite alarm me is, is the extent to which um, there's a generation now of people in the media who don't really have any sense of what the Church of England even is. Uh, they probably know as little about the Church of England as they know about Islam. May even know slightly more about Islam. Difficult to say. Um, and I think there is... Some of it is, as you say, own girl. I mean, you know, the mess over gay and women clergy is, you know, that is an own girl that needed to be sorted out. Um, but I think um, that some of the reaction in the media is actually fear of the unknown, is actually, you know, I'm not going to try and understand this, and therefore I'll make fun of it. Yeah. Um, you know, when, when people learn that I go to church, uh, they think that is a bit odd. And then the fact that my dad was a bishop kind of maybe ameliorates him, except I should have rebelled against him. That would be um, Although, you know, you see, I think the whole business of going to church is much, is about a lot more than, here's a terrible thing to say, God. There's a lot more than God. It's about community, uh, and it's about um, doing something together because there's so little we can do together. If if, if the pub's gone and the and we didn't go to the pub anyway, uh, if if going into each other's houses in the way we used to do in the Middle Ages has gone, then the church is 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 a moment in the week. I mean, I go to church because I like to see the rest of the community, and because I like to sit there and cogitate. That's why I don't want it in modern English. I, I, want, I want the rote. I just want it to go by. Uh, you know, Almighty God. I mean, what a, what a thought, Almighty God. I don't want that translated into uh, modern English. Um, I, I'd be just happy to have it in Latin, to be absolutely honest. It would still have the same beautiful resonance. It's the cadences and the, and the poetry. Um, and... Um, so it, 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 it's about cogitating, being forced for an hour to be there and to think. Well, I mean, I can tell you that if you've got a congregation of 15, if you get up and go out, you're making a statement. <laughs> you're making a statement. <laughs> I mean, so, you know, I mean... I, think, I honestly think it is, it is uh, disconnection, yeah. complete disconnection, fear of the unknown, much easier to make fun of it than to understand it. Uh, the tensions are complex, yeah. actually. They take a lot of disentangling. It's much easier to get the loudmouths from all the factions, put them on telly, have a bit of fun at their expense, and then go home. You've done the job. We mentioned the church. There's a, there's a story about the church, and we've just done it. Um, you know, Rowan Williams is a, is a, poses a huge problem for us because I think most people thought he would be a very exciting archbishop because he was radical, um, bright, brilliant, intellectual, etc. But he, he's been totally sagged down by this morass of dispute about sexuality, which, I mean, who cares? Thank <laughs> you.
question. I think we've. Well, sorry, one no. more question. My other question was about. Um, I was fascinated to hear what you said about um, when you started in journalism and the respect for the Prime Minister and how it's now changed. And I wondered whether you thought it's really gone far too far and somehow at some stage in the future it would be better to have more respect than the sort of state that we've got now. Well, I think respect has to be earned. Uh, that, that, that's one thing. But, but um, I think one of the most taxing and difficult problems that we need to resolve, but probably never will, is the governance of, of how we live. Um, and, and that extends right up to the Prime Minister and respect and all the rest of it. I mean, it is very difficult to respect um, a farmyard in the sense that that is what Prime Minister's Question Time is all about. It's all yabu. It's, it's what we did in the kindergarten. You know, and I mean, it just doesn't work well. And there's so much more to Parliament and to governance than what you see in Prime Minister's Question Time. But we put it on because it's such fun. <laughs> <laughs> right, well, I think we've we'll, we'll draw it to a close. Um, thank you very much for your time. And I, I'm sure you'd like to show your appreciation to John for coming and giving us a